listening to sermons from South Point McDonough, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. ever seem like a good idea at first? And then a little bit later, you're like, I don't know what I was thinking. Maybe for some of you, it's a tattoo that you got in college, and now you're doing everything you can to keep it covered up. And some of y'all have showed me those tattoos, and it was not a good idea at the time or now. <laughs> Maybe it's, you know, new Coke back in the 80s. Let's try some of this. Let's change a decades-old tradition. Maybe it's that one more glass of wine tonight. I'll be fine tomorrow. Maybe it's, I was at somebody's home a couple weeks ago. It was like, man, it seemed like a great idea to get some fish. That just seemed like a fantastic. So maybe for you, it's, I think we can get this animal. Let's just, do, let's just add this animal. You know what I mean? Then a couple weeks, I'm kind of in that spot. We had this dog a few years ago. And every time I see that dog, I'm just like, what is going on? I don't understand. It seems like a really good, maybe some of y'all, you're like marriage. Marriage, I'm right there with you. Seems like a good idea at first. It's like, ah, maybe having kids. I don't know. Whatever that is, it seems really good. You're like, this is going to be fantastic. Then it ends, and you're just like, man, this is not what I thought it was going to be. So last week we saw, we kind of skipped around a little bit through chapter 22 of Luke, and we saw the story of Peter who in the midst of his failure, Jesus remained faithful. And that hit home with me. It's been hitting home this whole past week. And I know for most of us, or a lot of us, I've had many conversations, it has. It's like, man, I am a failure. Today we're going to look at the other primary disciple here in this passage in chapter 22. We know him as Judas. We're familiar, for the most part, if you've been in church for uh, any period of time, we're familiar with Judas and it seemed like things were going well. We see Judas speak a few times through the Gospels. Three times he actually speaks. And it seems like he's saying good stuff. But then we come to understand Judas's heart. We've already seen in the beginning of chapter 22 that he has betrayed Jesus. So we see what starts as a really good idea. He's called. He's with Jesus for three and a half years. But it ends really, really poorly. So I want us to look at this passage this morning, beginning in verse number 35. And I want us to see that it doesn't necessarily matter how our lives begin. But what really matters even more than that is how they end. So our last day, your last day, friend, is incredibly more important than your first day. Either of life, of following Christ... It can look a lot of ways. What matters is where you end up. What matters is how you finish this race. So we see here in these first few verses that the cross changes all of human history. The cross changes all of human history. Because in Genesis chapter 1, chapters 1 and 2, we're created in the image of God, the Imago Dei. And I was thinking this past week, I'm like, what, is, what does that mean? We hear that. Does that mean I can look at somebody and say, all right, I see you, therefore I can basically see God. No, because we know that God resides in spirit. So what does it mean to be created in the image of God? For us, image, we see, 
we understand, we feel these things visually, audibly. It means that God came down and breathed his spirit into the clay and gave it life. So we're created in the image of God because God said, here, have part of me. Have my presence. Have this among you. So we're created in the image of God. And then, like I I say, my kids say this, yeah, but then like five minutes later, Genesis chapter 3 hits. And we have Adam and Eve. So human history begins to, well, it doesn't begin to go downhill. It falls off a cliff in Genesis chapter 3. We have sin enters the world. So as if, even though we're created in the image of God, in love and grace and mercy, he says, come, worship me, be with me, procreate, be creative like me. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve are sitting in a garden, and they say, you know what sounds better than following God? It's following myself. I've been alive for, you know, since the top of the hour. So, hey, Satan, thanks, thanks for the advice. We really appreciate that. I, I think I'll listen to you rather than the one who created me. So humanity falls off a cliff. From that point on, we are doomed. We are doomed. We are meant for the wrath of God. But we know that the cross, which when we look at chapter 22, the cross is really close in the future to what Jesus is thinking about looking at. But it's here in another garden when Jesus is looking forward to the cross, knowing that it changes all of human history past. For us this morning, the cross changes our present And the cross changes all of human history future. So the cross changes everything for us. So we see that here beginning in chapter uh, chapter 22, verse number 35. And we've actually already seen this back in chapter 10, but notice what Jesus says. And he said to them, talking to his disciples, and they're still sitting here in the upper room around the table, and then they're about to, to leave from here. He said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? So if you think back to chapter 10, he sends them out. He says, hey, go proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ to peoples all around, cast out demons, heal, all those kinds of things. And he said, don't take anything with you. I will be sufficient. Here he said, did you lack anything? They're like, well, no, obviously. We had your power. We had your spirit. We needed nothing at all. And in verse number 36, and he said to them, but now. And back when we were in chapter 10, we referenced there's going to be a change. So we don't say to missionaries or to us, hey, you don't need anything at all. You just need Jesus. Now go. That's not the model. This is the model, actually, for New Testament church. He is going to faithfully provide what his people need through his people. He says, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it. You're going to need some resources. And likewise, a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. In other words, persecution is coming. When a sword is more important than a cloak, you know that hard times are ahead. Difficult times are present. Verse number 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He grabs this from Isaiah chapter 53. If you want to, so Isaiah 52 and verse number 13, it actually begins this fourth servant song of Isaiah. And it's pointing to Jesus, what he is going to do. But as That song closes Isaiah 53, verse number 12. It actually says this. You can just listen there. You can go there with me if you want to. I'm already there. It says, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Here he's talking about Christ. Christ is going to be broken. He's going to be poured out. Because this is hundreds of years before Christ's life. We have this prophecy. 
He says, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. So Christ is saying, yes, this prophecy of Isaiah, it's going to be fulfilled in me. I've been telling you this for the past three and a half years of my ministry, that the Old Testament points to me. He says, just in case you weren't sure by now, I must be numbered with the transgressors. And it finishes, yet he bore the sin of many. He didn't bear the sin of all, notice. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. There had to be a fulfillment of the Old Testament sacrificial system, of the Old Testament prophecy. And here Jesus says, I must be put to death as a fulfillment of that. I was one with the Father. I've set aside my oneness, my physical connection with the Father, and I've stepped down. I've put on flesh. I've taken on humanity for you, for you transgressors. This is ultimate humility on the part of Jesus. And it was necessary for all of human history to be changed. He had to go to the cross. But here's what the disciples hear. All they hear is, we're dividing stuff. We're cutting stuff. We're going to take our sword? <laughs> like That's what they're thinking. We get swords? Oh, man. Because notice what they say. Verse 38. And they said, look, Lord. Here are two swords. <laughs> and he said to them, it is enough. Literally what this means, he says, it is enough. The translation there, it, he's saying, enough of this. Leave me alone. It's like when we were a kid, you get like the JCPenney catalog in the mail or the Sears catalog in the mail, and you start looking for all your Christmas toys. And you go through and circle everything you wanted. Now, thankfully, my parents were multimillionaires. Um, and my, my dad was one of those pastors who flew around on a helicopter and had a private. I'm just kidding. Um, we were living on food stamps for most of my childhood, uh, living in single wides. And so I would go through and circle those, everything I wanted in the Sears catalog. Here, here, mom and dad, here's what I want for Christmas. Awesome. Thanks. We're going to sell your sister so we can buy this stuff. <laughs> so, okay, let me knock off one or two things. Here, here's only $14,000 worth of things I want. It, Eventually, they'd be like, leave me alone. <laughs> like, enough of this. Enough of this. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, drop the idea of swords altogether. My kingdom is not a kingdom that's going to be brought in by force. My kingdom is going to be a kingdom where I am divided. My kingdom is one of sacrifice. I'm going to be cut. I'm going to be broken. I'm going to be pierced. Come. Live with me. Come, die with me. Come, join the effort of the cross with me. This is what transforms all of human history. Then we keep going in verse number 39, and we see here that our greatest deliverance actually came from an unanswered prayer. Just let that sit for a moment. Our greatest deliverance came from an unanswered prayer. And here we see Jesus and his disciples, and you can actually read about it in John. There's a little more detail there. But they leave from the upper room, and they head over to the Garden of Gethsemane. Verse 39, he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And then notice here in verse number 40, we see this is pretty common. 
Verses 39, and we see it again in verse number 41. It's common for him to go and to spend time with the Father, relying on him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not what? Enter into temptation. Verse 41. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, talking again to the Father. You see, the point of prayer is not prayer. Sometimes, and I've heard it said recently, sometimes you just gotta you just gotta pray until you want to. You just pray. That's what spiritual disciplines are. You just discipline yourself, you just pray, and then eventually you're gonna want to pray. You just gotta sit down and do it. You just gotta read your Bible until you want to read the Bible. There's no heart behind that. The point of prayer is to know the Father's heart. And if your if your heart does not want to and desire to know the Father's heart, prayer is always going to be meaningless to you. The Father wants to reveal his heart to you. He wants to be with you. He wants to be in your presence. It's like driving. When you, got in, you begin driving down the road, you're not staring at the yellow line. If you do, what are you going to do? You're going to be all over it. You look down here. The point of the yellow line is to say, here's where you're going. The point of prayer is not prayer. The point of prayer is to be in the presence of God the Father. Jesus understands that. And we can see, we can notice that by how he prays. But notice he doesn't tell the disciples, hey, pray for me. Because as I'm going to the cross, I really need your prayer. That's what we would figure that he would do. One of the times that often we say, hey, would you pray for this? It's when you're about to go through something, when you're dealing with something. He says, I want you to pray for yourselves. Pray for your faith to be strong in the midst of temptation. And he actually, three times he does this. We see it in the other gospels. But notice what he prays in verse number 42. He prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, please remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Remove this cup from me. He's just come from the Last Supper where there were four cups sitting there. And here again, he's speaking about the cup. This is important. As he's praying this, we know from the Old Testament that a cup is a symbol of God's wrath. The cup that he's talking about is the wrath of God the Father. So what we have in this passage is not just about God is mean. God is, he wants, to, he wants to pour out all of his anger on Jesus. Man, God is really messed up. What we need to understand is that God is holy. We see here the perfection, the character, the nature of God. And in the presence of God, because of his holiness, because of his set-apartness, because he is sanctified, his otherness. There can be nothing imperfect, impure in his sight. God is not apathetic toward our sin. God is furious at our sin. And he is furious, not just at sin, but friend, listen, he is furious at sinners. The idea that God loves the sinner but hates the sin is not in the Bible. The idea that we can have God's love but not have his wrath. I don't know who said that. Maybe Gandhi? But not Jesus. 
Jesus, if we look back at Isaiah 53, doesn't come down and say, I'm going to identify with the transgressions of people. What does he say? I'm going to come down and identify with transgressors. Either Christ will pay for your wrath, pay the price for the wrath of God on your behalf, or you will pay the price of the wrath of God. The wrath of God for you is either going to be on your head or it's going to be on Christ's. Those are the options. And here he says, take this cup from me. Can you imagine bearing the penalty of sin? Can you imagine being judged for the sin of every person who's ever lived? No, man, we can't. Can you even imagine being judged for your own sin under the righteous, perfect wrath of God? And you're not even perfect. Jesus says, remove this cup from me. Now, is Jesus weak? Or is he selfish in this request? No, absolutely not. He is the only human that's ever walked on the face of the planet who did not deserve this. And he understands he has a perfect nature. He is sinless. But what does he do? He became sin for us. He couldn't do that from heaven. He had to identify with us because the wrath of God is not just on sin, but it's on sinners. So he became a human for us, and the wrath of God is going to be poured out on him. This cup had to be drunk all the way down to the dregs. I love kombucha. My wife hates the smell of it because you crack it open and it's just like this delicious smell of strawberry vinegar <laughs> wafting in the truck. And it's like, man, put the, put the top back on that. But when you get down to the very bottom of that kombucha, there's like the dregs down there. You know what I'm talking about? Some of you are like, no, we're, we're too smart to drink kombucha. It's like if you drink coffee, sometimes there's grounds in the bottom. You know what I mean? Jesus couldn't just take a sip of the cup. Hmm, okay, I'm done. He couldn't just drink almost all of it. The cup of God's wrath had to be tilted up and all of it drunk by Jesus. Down to the very dregs. The entire curse was put on Jesus. The entire penalty, the entire price had to be paid so that God the Father could look at us like he did during the Last Supper and say, take, drink the cup of blessing. Drink the cup of redemption. Drink the cup of salvation. The cup of my grace. The cup of my mercy. The cup of my love. Here, take and you drink because the cup of my wrath has been finished by Jesus Christ. In verse number 43, we see what happens as he's praying. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. This we're reminded of when Jesus was in the wilderness. He's tempted for 40 days in the wilderness. Interesting, we have the, the parallel here. Jesus tells his disciples, pray that you would not fall into the temptation. Jesus is tempted for 40 days by Satan in the desert. 
at the end of that, an angel has to come and to minister to him. And thankfully, since the angel came, he feels much better. His strength is regained and everything's hunky-dory. Well, now I've got an angel and now I can go to the cross feeling great. Notice, does Jesus feel better? No. Verse 44, and being in agony. This could also be translated to understand, to say, and remaining in agony. The angel is there for his strengthening, not so the wrath of God can be removed from him, but so that he can remain under the wrath of God and fulfill the promises, the prophecy like we just read in Isaiah 53. He is strengthened so that he will remain. And you see, you see the agony here. In being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. He remained and he continued to pray, both for himself and for his followers. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. This agony, in other words, his body is system overload. His sweat turns to great drops of blood. Who's writing this again? Who's writing this book? Luke. Yeah, all right. I'm just making sure. I know it's the middle of the summer, man, but Luke. What is Luke's profession? He's a? Great. So if Luke is saying this, you know, yeah, this makes sense. Had a conversation with a brother last week. He said, man, I was, I was mentioning this to, um, to someone else, and they were like, yeah, yeah, that's just, he, that's just euphemistic language. That's, that's hyperbolic. People can't sweat drops of blood. So he went back and began researching this. Actually, you can. Being under great stress or anxiety or depression, your body begins producing blood. So here we see Jesus sweating great drops of blood. We see the, the blood pouring from his forehead. And guess what? This is well before the crown of thorns is placed there and it's forced to come out. In just a matter of hours, there will be a crown of thorns placed on his head. But here we see the terrible nature of what is about to happen. So great that Jesus Christ in the flesh if this cannot be removed from me, I'll endure this to the point of sweating drops of blood. And what caused this type of agony? Was it fear of death? No. Was he scared of pain? No. He doesn't mention this at all. He's afraid of the cup. He wants to avoid the cup of God's wrath. That's as bad as it gets. What's my greatest fear? Well, mine's snakes. What's your greatest fear? Is it the wrath of God? Is it your sin? Is it the penalty of your rejection and betrayal of Jesus Christ? Because that's Christ's greatest fear. His fear is the cup. The unmingled, undiluted, it's not touched. It's not like we got the cup of God's wrath and the father said, you know what, let me, let me add a little bit of, let me add a little sugar to that. Let me add a little mercy to that. No, 
There's no mercy at all, the absence of God's mercy in that cup. His greatest fear. Verse 45. And he rose, when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. Now, at this point, we think, what is wrong with these guys, right? What is, but why are they sleeping? Is it because they're tired? Is it because it's the middle of the night? Is it because they just drank four cups of wine? Why are they sleeping? Because they've started to understand that Christ is here to fulfill the prophecy. And they're sleeping, if you look at the very end right there, verse number 45, they're sleeping for sorrow. They're sleeping for grief. They're sleeping for agony. They understand what's about to happen for, to Christ, and they're like, man, I can't handle the weight of that. Have you ever been under such great sorrow that you're just like, I'm checking out, and your body just cannot stay awake? I've been there. I've been there. You just escape to the point where you fall asleep. That's what's happening with the disciples. They're just now starting to realize, after last week we had this conversation, who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Here they're like, oh my goodness, what in the world are we thinking? They finally begin experiencing this sorrow. Verse 46, and he said to them, why are you sleeping? He doesn't get mad. He doesn't start throwing stuff at them. He doesn't start striking them with lightning bolts. He said, rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Rise and pray. It's at this point that Jesus realizes, and he already knows it, he is going to be alone. That is the nature of his sacrifice. He pays the penalty completely, entirely for us, friends, by himself. We contribute nothing Nothing to our salvation. Loyalty is in short supply. And we're like, man, that stinks for Jesus. You know where loyalty is usually often in the shortest supply? It's in the church. It's in the church. Are we loyal to Christ? Are we loyal to his mission? But brothers and sisters, listen well. Are we loyal to each other in the same way that Christ was loyal to us? Are we loyal to fight sin? Are we loyal to encourage? Are we loyal to serve, to arrive early, to live sacrificially? Are we loyal in our desire for the kingdom of God to be built here on this earth as it is in heaven? Where's our loyalty? We see here this third section of scripture, beginning in verse number 47. We see here that Satan thinks that he is conquered, but actually he has helped to complete the plan of God. Satan here thinks that he is conquered, but he is not. Because if you think back to chapter 22, in verse number 2, we see here that this plan has been forged. We see here it's beginning to take place. It's coming to its completion. So this entire chapter about the Passover lamb is based on, it begins with and it ends with betrayal. It's wild. So we see here and he came, uh, sorry, while he was still speaking. So Jesus is out there with his disciples. He's like, guys, wake up, pray for yourselves. I'm doing this for you. He's still speaking. And a great crowd comes out there. And there's a man called Judas. Everybody say Judas. Judas. 
You can't help but just like put a stink face on. You know what I mean? Judas. Because we know what's up. He's one of the 12. He was leading them. Judas is always listed last in the order of disciples. Always. You think that's for a reason? Judas was the treasurer of the 12. Guess what Judas was doing most of the time? Skimming money off the top. He was stealing from the Lord. He sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Did you know that that's the same price for a slave in this day? So Judas didn't have these, even these grand plans of, of revolt, of revolution. If he had thought Jesus was worth a whole lot more, he would have sold him for hundreds, if not thousands of pieces of silver. He doesn't think there's anything special about Jesus. He sells him for 30 pieces of silver. What's wild is that G Judas had the best education. On his resume, uh, if he was going for a job interview, uh, where did you study? Well, I studied with, um, with, at the Lord's, the Lord's College. Okay, who were your professors? Uh, Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit. Okay, cool. Um, he, he had the best small group. If there was ever an issue that arose among the small group, Peter, you answer the question for me. You're about to write some of the Bible. John, you wrote part of it. Let's talk about these things. He had the best small group. He had the best education. He had the best experience. He had been sent out by Jesus to heal and to cast out demons and to spread the good news of who Christ was. That's who Judas was. But none of these things were enough. None of them were enough. What, what does James say? You can have all the knowledge in the world, but if you do not obey, you don't have faith. He was incredibly close to Jesus, so close that at the Last Supper, they were sitting side by side, Judas and Jesus. Yet he never had a life-changing experience with Jesus. John chapter 17, Jesus is talking to the Father. Jesus says, I have all of these. I've taken care of all the ones that you have given me. Except for whom? The son of destruction, which is Judas. He said, none of these are going to leave me, except Judas, because he was never mine. He's the son of destruction. Being in community with God's people is simply not enough. You must belong to God. So you can show up every Sunday morning. No joke, when I was a kid, my grandparents, every time I went to visit them, they'd say, hey, look at the new pen I got from church. Like, I, I went to Sunday school. I haven't missed a Sunday school in like 145 years. You know, look, they gave me a pen. I thought that was cool. I'd go in to, you know, talk to my granddad, and he's in there reading the Bible. Not now, boy, I got to, you know, finish Lamentations. I'm like, okay, sorry. Because he had to read the Bible through every single month. My grandma had to wear the same set of culottes for each day of the week because pants are of the devil. You know what I mean? You can be so close, and your heart is still not changed. They also believe that the Bible says that God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> wow. That's not, the, that's not the good news of the gospel. God helps those who cannot at all help themselves. We bring our weakness to the cross. Verse number 47. As, as he came in, we just read this verse. Judas exploits the trust of Jesus. They were good friends. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. That's how betrayal 
essentially, linguistically has to happen. Jesus loved Judas. He betrays him. He knew what Jesus was about to do. He often goes to the garden, as is his custom. Judas is like, hey, he's going to be in the garden after this. Go meet him there. He says he gives him a, it says he gives him a kiss. Jesus said to him, oh, sorry, in verse 47, Judas drew near to Jesus to kiss him. Now, this is a symbol of intimacy, of friendship. Even in the early church, there was a symbol of a holy kiss. I tried to give one to a brother this morning, and he rejected it. So we'll be bringing him under church discipline shortly. I'm sorry to say. I'm just but in this day especially, there's this idea of a holy kiss. When I kiss my wife, even when neither one of us has brushed our teeth yet for the day, that's true love. So this act of love, of affection, which was customary for a disciple to give their rabbi, is here turned into a symbol of vengeance, of betrayal, of hatred. What was given as a good gift from God is here turned into a gift that's used for the mission of the evil one. But notice how Jesus responds. He gives Judas yet one more chance. In the midst of his betrayal, Jesus extends mercy. Verse 48, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the son of man with a kiss? And I imagine their faces. Judas has got to be standing there like, doggone, man. Why can't you just be mad at me? And Jesus, I'm sure, is standing there after sweating drops of blood in agony over his friends. Looks at Judas. Judas, brother, I've loved you so well. I'm going to the cross for transgressors just like you. Do you still want to continue with this? And in verse 48, sorry, verse 49. And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike him with a sword? It's like a kid, you know, you give him a dollar and it's just burning a hole in his pocket. They've got these swords. Jesus is like, okay, we can use swords. Uh -huh. Can you wait to use the sword? <laughs> so all of a sudden the disciples who were before sleeping, now they, they're like, whoa, 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 something's happening. Ride or die, Jesus. Here we go. All right. The kingdom's coming in. We're ready to rock and roll. They finally wake up. And one of them, verse 50, and we know from other gospel accounts, is Peter. <laughs> Peter struck, uh, one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Is there very much faith happening in this verse? Nah. But that's Peter. We love him. Jesus said, no more of this. I already told you to put your swords up. No more of this. Stop. And he touched his ear and healed him. My kingdom will not be inaugurated by violence, but by sacrifice. No more of this. If I was the guy who was going to arrest Jesus for his death, and I had my ear cut off, Jesus picks it up and sticks it back on the side of my head. Oh, much better. Even got like some wax out of it. That's great. Okay, now, Jesus, we're going to take you to prison. What in the world? We see the kindness of Christ on full display to Judas, to Peter, to even this guard who has his ear cut off. We see the kindness of Christ, which should lead us to what? To repentance. And what happens? 
He says, thanks, Jesus. All right, now put your hands behind your back. What in the world? There was no heart change. But how often do we respond to the kindness of Christ in the exact same way? Verse 52, then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and elders, basically right here, he's exposing them as gutless wimps. He's like, come on, guys, man up. He says, have you come out as, uh, out as against a robber with swords and clubs? Am I a robber? Am I a bad dude? I mean, one of my guys just cut one of your guys' ear off, but that wasn't me. I healed him. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour. You've got a time period. I'll give you an hour. I'll give you a short period of time. And the power of darkness. This hour is the power of darkness. He's saying, just so you know, you scribes, you Pharisees, you religious people, you are serving the enemy. You are serving the kingdom of the enemy. And for a moment, the power of darkness has the upper hand. For a moment. Here are five truths I want us to walk away with this morning that I think we see here in this passage. First, to fellowship with Jesus, we follow him to the cross. To fellowship with Jesus, we follow him to the cross. If you look back at verse number 42, we have the idea here as Jesus prays of submission. Not my will, but your will be done. In the kingdom of God, friends, we will be ready to die for Jesus rather than willing to kill for him. How many of us said, if you had the choice, would you rather die for Jesus or kill for Jesus? I know which one I'm picking. I know which one I'm ready for. That's not a kingdom value. The kingdom value is one of sacrifice. It's one of death. Secondly, my flesh says that suffering is not worth it. That's because my goal is a good, a good kingdom here on this earth. My flesh says that suffering, ah, is not worth it. But what does Jesus do? He endured. In the book of Philippians, Paul uses this word, hupomone. Everybody say, hupomone. It's just fun. And it means to withstand, to stand under, to bear the weight of. Jesus stood there. He endured patiently under shame, under rejection, under the wrath of God. It's because he patiently endured that we can put to death our pride, which wants to run away. We are to grieve like Jesus. We are to be moved like Jesus. And if you do what Jesus did, you will always get the short end of the stick. Like, ah, well, what about the good parts? Can we get... In this world, you will be hated. In this world, you will experience death and loss and suffering and agony and anxiety and depression. You'll experience the loss of a job, the loss of a child, the loss of a spouse, the loss of a parent. In this life, you will be rejected. You will lose friends. You will lose freedoms and opportunities. You will lose your health. You'll lose your hair. But will you remain? 
If you love like Jesus, you'll be hated like Jesus. Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church. He says, husbands, love your wives in the same way. All right, man, I'll do my best. Until she disagrees with something I said. Until she grows in vengeance or contempt in her heart toward me. Well, I, I can't love her then. Let me ask you this. How did Christ love the church? At his demise. As the church rejected him. As the most religious people bound him and placed him on the cross. Jesus extended love. In the midst of hatred and denial, Jesus loved. If you love like Jesus, you're going to be hated like him. Thirdly, God saying no to our request, God saying no to our request does not equal abandonment. This is really good news for us this morning. Man, why did God answer my prayer? When I was a kid, I remember I prayed all the time for a Super Nintendo, and God did not love me enough to give me one. He just didn't. If you look back at verse number 43, the father sent an angel, even though he did not grant God's request. Sorry, he did not grant Jesus' request. The angel encourages Jesus even as the scene gets darker. As he falls deeper into despair, into agony, Jesus did not experience immediate relief or pleasure. But the angel was there to strengthen him to give him courage. We have the temptation to escape from suffering, right? We begin to experience any sort of suffering, agony, defeat, despair. Our temptation is to run from that rather than be strengthened by the grace of God in the midst of it. Here's what I mean. We run, instead of, man, I, let me remain, let me run to Christ in the middle of this. We want to go to sleep, just like the disciples did. We want to run to pleasure. I want to see something on my screen that's going to make me feel better. I'm anxious. I'm angry. I'm tired. I want to go to Amazon so I can buy something. I want to go scroll through social media so I can get some dopamine hits. Well, I got another one. Boom. My brain feels better. It sends these signals all over my body, which it brings a small bit of pleasure. And then as soon as it's done, what do we do? Pick our phone back up so we can scroll, look at some more stuff. I want to go watch some more Netflix. I just finished six and a half hours, but, oh, man, I still feel, it hasn't made me feel any better. So guess what I'll do? Do it again. Maybe it'll work this time. Maybe one more hour-long episode will make me feel better. Let me go to be alone. Let me, let me go self-indulge. Let me go eat. Rather than running to Christ, who endured on our behalf, he remained for us. What does he do? He says, pray for yourselves that you will not fall into temptation. What's the temptation there? I think the temptation there is the failure to persevere. Because what did Judas do? He failed to persevere to the end. Started well. What did Peter do? He failed to persevere to the end. How did he start? Really well. He cuts off a dude's ear. He rejects Jesus 10 minutes later. Doesn't matter how you start, it matters how you finish. Pray that you will not fall into temptation, that you will not live according to the flesh. Rise and pray are his words to the disciples. Rise and pray for strength in the midst of grief. The fourth thing that we see here is that Jesus remains just as present with us in the no 
as he does in the yes. However he responds to the deepest longing of our heart, to what we think we need the most, without the presence of Jesus, we're missing out. And even when he responds no to our request, we still get Jesus. Because the prayer that saves sinners, that saves us, when we say, I repent, I confess, I surrender my life to you, take control of that, I believe in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the prayer that saves sinners is only possible because the prayer of Jesus was denied here in the garden. The Father denies the Son so that he can accept us. The Father rejects the Son, turns his back on him so that we can be adopted in and find hope and life. Lastly, friends, your last day of following Jesus is more important than your first. Last week, we said we were going to juxtapose Peter and Judas, and we looked at, at Peter, how he forsook Jesus, how he betrayed Jesus. But at the end of Peter's life, even there when, not at the end of his life, as soon as Christ is raised back to life, he comes and he restores Peter because of Peter's repentance. Judas had remorse. As soon as this is over, Luke doesn't record it, but other gospel writers do. As soon as this goes down, Judas is like, what have I done? I feel great remorse. I feel great shame. And I'm going to cover the shame on my behalf. So Judas goes and he kills himself. He bears the wrath of God on himself. Peter runs to Christ and says, Would you extend your grace? Would you restore my life? I repent. I turn from my sin. I turn from you. Both Peter and Judas were called by Jesus. They followed closely to Jesus day after day. Both of them denied Jesus. Both of them betrayed Jesus. Both of them were controlled to a certain degree by Satan. Both of them wept bitterly, but only one ran to Jesus. Judas and Peter were both transgressors. Judas's shame led to despair and to destruction. Peter's sin and shame led him to repentance and to restoration. There are only two options. And I would plead with you this morning that you would repent of your sin, that you would turn from that and turn to Christ, that you, like him, would sacrifice your life to find hope eternal. And wherever you are this morning, if you are in the depths of despair, of darkness, of sin, of shame, of addiction, know that the power of darkness only lasts but for an hour. And the kingdom of Christ will reign forever. In the same way that Jesus dipped his bread into the cup with Judas, he has dipped his hand in the cup with us. And he has taken the entire cup of the wrath of God to offer us a cup of blessing. So I would plead with you this morning, as we partake in this meal, as we take this bread and we dip it in this juice, 
that we would be reminded that we have been blessed by Jesus Christ, that we have the opportunity to repent of our sin. Wherever you are, may your last day be better than your first. And that's not going to be by your own power. It's certainly not going to be by the power of darkness, but only by the king of light who created us, who identifies with us in flesh, who paid the price for our sin on the cross, and who, beloved, he rose three days later, conquering the sin that we repent of, conquering death that we look forward to but that we can look beyond. He has conquered the grave which cannot hold us. He has conquered the power of sin which sometimes so easily grips our hearts, so tightly clings. Look to Christ. Run to him. He endured so that you can escape. 